0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Teeth and Tails. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Manacheri, and today's episode is all about selling a dental practice. So whether you're considering selling your own practice, or whether you just want to know the process and what it involves, then this episode should be interesting for you. My guests today are Kate Beach and Connor Bryan. You may have heard them on the podcast in previous episodes. episode is very kindly brought to you by Carter Bond Solicitors and I really hope you enjoy it and without further ado let's get into it. Hi Kate, hi Connor, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both?
1: I'm well thanks, thank you for having us again. It's uh, lovely to be doing another
0: podcast with you.
2: Yeah, Yeah, how are you doing anyway? You're all good?
0: I'm very good, thank you. I feel like you're both pros at this point, so I don't need to go through anything. And We have a bit of background on both of you, um, which is very nice. So we're just going to jump into the topic today, which is selling dental practices, a very, very big topic to cover. Um, but we're going to go through it step by step and just find out to begin with, who is selling dental practices at the moment? Because I would imagine that um, somebody who's selling their dental practice is somebody who's nearing the end of their professional career you know they've been working for a long time they've invested all their time and money into this practice and now they're getting ready to retire sell up and enjoy their lives is is that the case or do you find that there's actually a whole range of people selling dental practices now
1: I I would have thought would have said that that was probably um what occurred previously um if you were to rewind sort of eight nine ten years ago um that most dentists in that scenario are wanting to, you know, stop practicing Um, and a little bit like when you buy and sell a house, they want to hand over the keys as they hand over their clinical duties. They can't wait to deregister from the GDC. Um, But a a dentist now today um, is different to who's looking to sell. They can be of all types and ages and in different places in their professional careers. For many, I suppose it's it's post COVID, they no longer want that responsibility of the ownership and management of the practice. Um, few dentists actually want to give up on their clinical duties. A lot of them will remain working for a buyer after completion. Um, so it's a different kind of seller. There are still those that are looking to 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 fully retire, but for most, it's 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 not necessarily about retirement or the end of their professional careers anymore.
0: And do you find that it's become, for example, people who do squat practices, is it, do you see this a lot where it's a business of developing squat dental practices, building that goodwill and then selling them after a few years? Do you get that with super entrepreneurs who just happen to be yes. dentists as well?
1: Yes, we, we do. Um, I think exiting is always a big thing for them though, because it's at what point do you exit? But that usually is tied in with when they're setting up squat practices, one of the um, points is setting up one, you then have a blueprint for the rest. But it's at that point of you then have to stop possibly borrowing the money and it's at how much and at what level can you leverage it at. So it, it, the more practices you have, the more you can sometimes struggle to, to raise the finance for it um, as compared to the one. So then exit sometimes becomes around selling um and and what and what's going to happen going forward but yes we do see it we do see it a lot Um, for a lot of people who are buying squat practices and building that process it's as you do it you have to think about when you are going to exit but they're not necessarily exiting when they've hit 65 they're exiting when they bought 10 practices they developed 10 practices and off they go
0: Well, and I know we spoke about this last week about um, buying dental practices and the difference between NHS practices and private practices in terms of selling. Does it make a difference if it's a NHS practice, private practice, mixed practice practice? Is the process a bit more difficult for one compared to the other? Is, Is one more simple or they're about the same?
2: Yeah, so um, usually the NHS practices, they were the most popular at one point, uh, the the predominantly NHS practices, but we're seeing that the the demand for them is sort of going down now, and even we're seeing sellers uh, hand back the NHS contracts at at the end of the day and just getting rid of the private, um, just selling the practices as as like a private entity instead of the actual NHS element, because the NHS uh, part of the practices is difficult. So like it's hard to transfer an NHS contract because, you, as we touched on last week, you can't actually sell one. So you have to jump through a few hoops with the local area team to actually get that contract sold. So, yeah, we're, we're seeing that uh, the, the private practices now are becoming more, um, more more sought after compared to the NHS contracts, aren't we, Kate? And it's, it, it, it's sort of dying out now, to be honest. We're seeing a lot of contracts as well, which are just all of them, nine out of ten at all, underperforming because the, the sellers are just focusing on doing the private way because obviously you, you earn more money. So, um, yeah, the NHS is sort of sort of dying out. We're seeing the, the private going, going for more now.
0: That's really interesting because I would have thought for, for selling a dental practice, having a contract is very attractive to an incoming buyer because it's that guaranteed income. But I suppose with an NHS contract comes the added pressures and all the paperwork, all the um, requirements, everything, all the performance that you need to do um so I guess it is a bit difficult to maintain as as a as a principal and owner of a practice
1: yeah I would agree with you I mean I I I used to always say if you were buying a practice you'd be looking for a practice that was a nice mixed practice and you could develop it and maybe build a surgery or do some private work on top of the NHS but but now for sellers you know the the practices that are selling that are NHS practices they have to be very well run they have to be performing pretty much new enough not they don't Always have to be on target, obviously, but they have to be around that ninety-six percent tolerance. Um, whereas a lot of practices that are on the market are, are well and truly below below their below their target. And, and just to give a bit of a feel as to what happens if the practice is below a target when you come to sell, because I think that's probably quite useful to you now, is that any of that value of that underperformance is deducted off the purchase price.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, and the buyer inherits the ability to then pay that back. So it becomes um, quite an important point if you've got quite a significant underperformance, if you've got a you know, if you're expecting to receive a certain amount of money for your practice and you've got I don't know fifteen hundred grand to pick, to come off that purchase price.
0: And is there a time limit? So, for example, if that underperformance is only for a year or two, does it make a difference? Because I would assume if somebody's planning on selling and they're underperforming on the contract, they would, for example, if they plan on selling in one or two years, they would really, really pay attention to making sure they are on target. So um, does that history matter?
1: The history does matter, yes, in the sense of whether you're at the levels of getting a breach notice. So there's a bit of a unwritten rule, maybe, um, although it depends on the direction of the wind, I think sometimes with the local area teams, about you know, if you have two consecutive breach notices, then you're at risk of the contract being terminated. And if we were to rewind, I don't know, pre-COVID, we would have always been really keen on making sure that in an, in an agreement, we have provisions that protect seller and buyer. And, and for the seller, would be saying, well, look, if the contract does get reduced because of your underperformance to later date when you terminated, then the seller gets to sort of speak with the local area team and make representations. Now, whilst we might still have those provisions, we're less worried because in reality, is the NHS going to take away that contract? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably, you know, we have many occasions where we speak with sellers as they're preparing for a sale. And in that scenario where they might have two um, underperforming years, we, you know, you can go back to the low team and ask for a temporary reduction in your UDA target so that therefore you are hitting your target and that they might have an effect on value. Um, But most local area teams don't seem very keen with doing that additional paperwork and will simply just rely on clawback. Um, So it's just being aware. I I would say that for most sellers, and and I'm quite open with sellers, um, it's not something to be embarrassed about or be concerned about. Most practices that have an NHS contract that are on the market are underperforming. It is a very regular occurrence.
0: Wow. Um, and that's, I guess, very relevant. I mean, I, I've been out of the NHS game for a while now, but I guess that's very relevant this time of year is like when everyone's going crazy trying to hit targets. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and everybody
1: wants to complete their sale consequently at the end of March. So we have a real bumper time at the end of March. Um, oh, gosh. Wow. For that exact reason.
0: So if somebody is thinking of selling their dental practice, what do they need to know? Is it something that they need to start planning from years before? So, for example, this might be a long term plan of if somebody is retiring or if somebody is um, transferring the business for whatever other reason, if they want to reduce their responsibilities, is it a process of preparing for it a year or two in advance or can it be quite quick? What would what do they need to do and when do they need to start preparing?
1: I think preparation is key. Um, Getting your ducks in order and a well presented practice sells ultimately. But what a practice was valued at maybe a year ago and what it's valued at now um, changes. So th- there might be a difference in valuation, but definitely I would say get, you, get your ducks in order and start planning ahead. And certainly for those who are looking to sell out to a corporate um, or, or have a different kind of structure as to how they sell out. Um, but for, for, for a start of the term, most, most selling dentists will, will engage an agent. Um, and there's many an agent out there and they will help to structure um The practice for sale, and they'll help to broker that 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 sale, even if it's just an associate or a friend. For most agents, they are they're quite happy um to help that process. By all means, it isn't a necessity, um but they just tend to have access to buyers, and a bit like when you sell in a house, they can make sure that the buyer can substantiate uh, their offer, so that it, it gives you gives you that help, and they help to keep it, a, um, a sale on track. Um, but also, you don't know what it's valued at until you've appointed an agent. Um, And one of the biggest frustrations at the minute in the market, certainly for buyers, is this sort of automatic assumption that a practice is going to be worth, you know, top dollar because it has always been a seller's market. Um, So what I tend to say to sellers is that the high prices and the demand are only there for certain practices um, and valuers can often value practices different, you know, in different ways. You know, the good old EBITDA and what does that mean? And just to give you an example of one, I spoke to a a potential seller a couple of months ago. He was looking to sell a very nice practice in a very nice location, Um, very well run. He didn't have any underperformance issues. Um, But between his highest and lowest valuation, there was about 400 grand in difference. Um, And he'd read in all the articles in the the press about dental valuations that he should should get a premium on top. But that press was probably quite old press, really, it's quite old information, but he he still expected to receive another 200 grand on top of his top valuation. So from the bottom valuation, an extra 600K, um, which would have meant his practice was worth over 2 million quid. And and I said to him, who do you want to sell to? Because that's quite a a big thing. You know, when you're thinking of selling, who do you want to sell to? He was very much, I don't don't want to sell to a corporate. I want to sell to a chap or woman like me, um, an individual dentist. And when I said to him, how how does that person raise 2 million pounds to to buy that practice? how are they going to do it um he was very quiet on the phone he said well i assume they'll get need a need to lend and i said yeah i would have thought so not many dentists have two million pounds of cash set in the <laughs> bank um, and if they do i doubt they're going to buy practice and we sort of had these chats about it I said, you know trying to remind him that he'd that, that dentist would then have to have some personal input probably 200k plus of money they'd have to put into buying that practice so I always think for sellers it's worth keeping an open mind and remember what it's like on the other side remember what it was like when they were looking to buy a practice or invest or set up their own practice um you know it's it's not the case that the highest offer is the best offer either um it, it's 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 worth it's worth bearing that in mind um and just to add to that um one of the points I I often say and um, if you're thinking about selling you know an offer is just an offer to pay it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the price that actually gets paid for so um quite a number of buyers will look through the information about the practice and they might restructure so just because heads to terms say that they're going to pay you a million pounds for example doesn't mean that they will um, so yeah getting your ducks in order well presented practice will truly sell
0: so this is something that i notice as well in terms of valuations when i when i look at practices to buy and I started doing this about a year or two ago as an exercise just to understand the numbers and we were speaking about this last week um because the numbers can be quite complicated and i have a family friend who is an accountant and who is a financial advisor and he's he has many talents and i kept showing him these prospectuses and he was saying that actually the valuation based on the numbers the value of that practice was something like a fraction of what they've put as asking price so it just didn't make sense. Some of these valuations, there's a lot of factors going on it. And as you rightly said, it, it's always been a seller's market. So when practices are presented or put out to be purchased, it's very important to understand who is going to buy those practices. Because if it's going to be an individual dentist, very rarely are they going to have a lot of money lying around. Um, so they'll probably be getting a loan and the bank will want to value that themselves. So it's 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 a bit tricky, isn't it? And and you know sometimes I think, Again, we were speaking about thoughts and feelings and emotions and things. And I think for somebody like myself, who's, you know, quite early in the profession and in their career and looking at buying and things like that. My thoughts and emotions and feelings have a big impact on what I do. Um, but then equally, I don't have that much money lying around to spend you know, an extra 200k on top of um, an asking price. So then would it be the corporates buying that overpriced practice? But then again, they would be looking at the numbers and they would have to justify that. So I think that's a very important point that you raise. Who's going to buy this? Is it going to be somebody who's inexperienced but doesn't have money? Or is it going to be somebody who has a lot of money but is very much looking at numbers and having you need to make that valuation make sense to them.
1: Yes, I think it does. And, and also for many a seller, I'm um, touching on the feelings point. Sellers will often look at buyers um, and, and I've seen some of them, you know, obtain sort of what really accounts to a CV of a buyer, you know, a reason why they should sell to this buyer. And they want that. They want they want that same sort of feeling. Sometimes of making sure that they are passing it on as the sort of custodians of it, as to who's going to get it next. Um, isn't always the case. Um, but yes, valuations. Uh, they're a tricky one. And I would always say to a seller, sit down with your accountant, sit down with a a specialist um, business consultant who's 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 good with dental practices, and just make sure that all the um, information adds up, because then your expectations are far better managed with the process.
0: Yeah. And, and also when um, that transaction is done, often the seller will stay on for a period of time. Um, so it it is a big deal that the seller and buyer get on if it's an individual dentist, there needs to be that relationship between them. Um, and kind of, you know, if, if it is that dentist who's retiring and is handing over their goodwill, you know, a lot of these patients, you would have gone through a lifetime with them, with their families. So it's very important that you trust and you you know you trust that person with this list or with the goodwill with your life's work so it's very important um speaking about getting everything in order getting your ducks in order um what is that process i know we touched on due diligence i think in in previous episodes um what is that what does that mean
2: so due diligence is basically like homework for the seller so if you're buying something you want to you want to see the whole picture of the business if that makes sense so uh, you need to get all the all the financial information all the information relating to the pieces of equipment you want you want to know what you're buying is is solid so the x-rays need maintaining don't they we want to see all all the maintenance records making sure they're fine all the autoclaves you want to see they're all in working order want to see there's no discrepancies between one year's accounts to the next so basically we just want to get a full picture of the business before anything signed any of the documents are signed so as a seller you basically need to dig out all the paperwork that you've got all the nhs documents li- literally everything in relation to the practice fire alarm certificates um so it, it is a mammoth task isn't it kate when we when we sell sellers uh, that they need to do due diligence and we send over the questionnaire for them to complete it's like it, it can take weeks and yeah. even months do you know what i mean so it's like they need to just basically have all the paperwork and this is something that sellers definitely need to know before they, consider selling the practice need to make sure they've got everything because we send the questionnaire over and they're like well I don't know where any of these receipts are I haven't got a clue and then you've got to get in touch with um, all the different suppliers and dig out contracts it is a mammoth task to do isn't it Kate
1: it is and I often I I always give these two examples for every seller because I always say it's the worst bit of homework you'll ever have to do but it's the carrot at the end of the stick to get your money Um, And I always talk about the seller who on a Friday afternoon was sent the due diligence questionnaire and by Sunday he had uploaded all the information, beautifully labelled, all on the online portal, perfectly redacted, had every item there, every question answered. He sold his practice in eight weeks. Um, There were other reasons he sold his practice so quickly, but I mean, that just gives you a feel. And then there's the other other end of the spectrum. And again, another example I use when I talk to sellers about the process. Um, and it was a chap who was selling. And this was before we had all the online dating rooms and things. And it must have been, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And he had been chasing him for the information and the replies. And he rocked up one day outside the office and um, popped down to his car. And I op- he opened the boot. And the boot was just full of sheets of paper. Sheets of paper <laughs> covered in I don't know what, toothpaste <laughs> and the like, I would say. All photocopied wrong. And he just went, he, was, he basically went, ta-da, here's the due diligence. Um, his practice sold the best part. it took the best part of a year to sell, and let's just say he didn't get the price he asked for. and but I give those examples because due diligence is that horror show of a task to do, but um, get on and do it for a
0: when the thought of this is giving me anxiety <laughs> I hate paperwork and just having to have it but I guess it's one of those things that if you have it organized it's there for you you don't have to find he, it
1: he, yes if you talk about the chap who did it over the weekend his systems were all electronic so he it was literally just copy paste copy paste and he, wow. he, he knew where everything was so yes I need Um, to
0: know who that person is so I can get in touch with them (laughs) so they can teach me how to organize my life (laughs) we'll
1: probably all need them in our life to be fair but yeah uh, yeah they're the different extremes but they're a good way of explaining that due diligence is one of those horror show bits worst part worst bit of homework you'll ever have to do um but massively important and and uh, yeah definitely
0: so should the seller and a buyer talk to each other or is it very much a case of let's go through a middle person, let's have our solicitors discuss this and, and we don't talk or should so they we actually we usually, communicate?
2: Yeah, we usually encourage it. Like the, the, the seller speaking to the buyer just makes everything easy because everyone's on the same page. When we've had it in the past, Kate and the sellers don't speak to the buyer, it's like we, we had a deal recently actually where the seller never actually spoke to the buyer at all up until completion. And it was so, it was like, It's like Chinese whispers. It's like them speaking to us. And they were
1: divorcing each other. It was like a divorce as opposed to coming together.
2: Yeah, and as Kate touched on before as well, many sellers stay on as an associate post-completion. So when you sell to, like, say, a big corporate, usually the purchase price is split between you'll get a completion payment and then you'll get this thing called the third consideration. So they'll say, if you stay on as an associate for X amounts of years, we'll release this payment. Uh, each year so long as you hit these targets so it sort of ties the seller in so the the communication between both parties is absolutely key because any sort of breakdown in communication there can be mixed messages and then mm. you don't know what's going on dude you know what I mean so it's it, it, it is really crucial to to speak to the person that you're buying the practice off uh, because most likely you're going to be working together you're going to be partnered up for a couple of years after it in most cases.
0: I was looking at a practice to purchase uh, about a year ago now um, and it was a very attractive practice. Everything looked very good. Um, there was a few question marks in my head, and I kept asking the agent if I could speak to the seller, and the seller just flat out refused to speak to me um, about any of the questions I had. And that was the biggest red flag I could see. So I just pulled out completely. You know, it just it doesn't make sense if somebody doesn't want to speak to you, I guess. Yes, you can leave the logistics for the professionals to work out, like the your solicitor, or your accountant, to look at the um the paperwork and all of that but in terms of speaking you know you want to have that conversation and a lot of the time when you go and see a practice it's not necessarily the seller that's showing you the practice it could be an agent it could be a member of the team so it's really important to have that initial meeting I think or just talk to them just to get a feel of what this is about and if you can work together and you know I just think it's such a red flag if any of the parties refuse to speak to the other one
1: I, I, I would completely agree with you and and I think for the sellers you know they they've, they've owned that practice sometimes for 20 25 years they know how it's run and not just how it's run but clinically how it's run. run um and as as lawyers accountants we don't know that we don't have that expertise so I think you know one you know clinical person speaking to another clinical person just on that level alone um it's it it's so massively important so I, I can understand why it's a red flag um it it, 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 Communication is
0: is really, really key. It's key, um. And we spoke about individual dentists buying or corporates buying. What would be the difference in in the process, um, if it if you were selling to a corporate rather than an individual dentist?
1: So selling to a corporate, I would say, is not for everyone. Um, they sometimes get a bit of a bad reputation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that is the case. Um. Again, using examples, I, I remember this must have been oh, I don't know, six, seven years ago. There's was a chap who turned up, way, very well known dentist at the office, and he was really in a mood about you know the due diligence. And I thought it was just the due diligence process he didn't like. And his wife was saying, You are going to sell, you are going to sell to this corporate. <laughs> um, and after six months, it was like he had a personality transplant. He, he rung up and he went, Right, I'm outside of my exclusivity period now. So um, I am going to sell to somebody else. And he was such a different person. And he said to me very clearly, "I never wanted to sell to the corporate." So when we talk about who you're going to sell to, we, we we touched on it before. It's really important to work out whether you are open to any offers or whether you want to sell to a corporate or not. One of the key things with a corporate is that they will work to a matrix. So whether that's the sort of financial structure or, or 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 the sort of own valuation process, nobody ever gets to know what that is. Uh, so. <laughs> it's an unknown. Um, but for them, for the corporate, it's not about the necessary the personal side of things. It's about whether the sums add up. If they don't add up, um, then s- simply they're going to look to restructure their price. Um, and they're also very detailed in that due diligence. So, you know, Connell's was talking about due, due diligence and maybe providing, I don't know, an x-ray. Um, maintenance certificate if you sell into an individual they might take a bit of a view on it or they might say you can provide it after completion or different options or that they'll they'll do it that you have the deduction of the purchase price with the corporates they don't like I like, don't like that they would much prefer to see everything in place all policies and procedures correct and in the right place um, and then just another point really just to be aware of. When you're selling to an individual dentist they'll probably have a survey done of the of the property a little bit like you would do when you buy a house um, a corporate will do the same but the corporate will say that the you know they'll, they'll have their own surveyor in-house and they'll often say well look we want the property to be bought up to a certain standard so usually the seller has to input some money um and then as, as, as Connor touched on a corporate very rarely pays full price asking price at completion. Um, they tend to do a sort of 70 30 split, and that 30% is then paid out over f- three, four years. And there's certain financial targets that have to be reached. Um, so it, it is different. Um, but I wouldn't mean put that off, put that the you way, know, put any sellers off. Many clients who've sold to corporates talk very positively about it after completion.
0: They um, would agree with you. I think corporates tend to get a bad rep. Um, and I guess they have to be you know, quite uh, systematic in their approach and they have to have all the boxes ticked rather than an individual dentist who might go with their thoughts and emotions and and all of that and might make exceptions in certain, uh, certain circumstances. But I've also spoken to a number of colleagues who have sold to corporates and for them, they will continue working in the practice and it, they just didn't want the responsibility of running a dental practice. And they found that actually the corporates come in, they've got a very structural way of doing things, they take care of everything. And they just have that clinical freedom and they get on with their work um, yeah. as a dentist rather than anything else um, and this is I think predominantly uh, very important for dentists who love clinical work rather than managerial business side of things so I've heard both sides I guess and and it could be good or bad I guess depending on your individual circumstance
1: yeah and I think that goes back to whether you are that person who wants to sell to the corporate or not mm. um I think it's worth keeping an open mind. I would say that to any of the sellers. Don't say you're not going to do x or y because you're just closing doors that you know are, are worth looking at, even if you even if you don't feel like you want to sell to x, y or Z. Um, but yeah, selling to a corporate is just slightly different in that regard.
0: And I know, for example, corporates will have their entire team probably set in place from their designers, builders, solicitors, surveyors, accountants, everybody. But say you're an individual dentist um, who's selling that practice. Do you need to have a solicitor from the beginning or does that come in later when an offer has been accepted? Or what stage do you need to appoint a solicitor in this process?
2: So you can start, uh, you can appoint a solicitor straight away. We act for a number of sellers who haven't actually got a buyer for the practice here. Um, and we're just prepared enough to go to market so we'll be dealing with the due diligence for them so everything's ready and like Kate touched on before someone who sold the practice in eight weeks will probably have had someone in the corner who's sorted everything out for them so it's like when the due diligence questionnaire comes through it's like here you go here's everything review it and then you've got a good good picture of the practice because when we get instructed and there's already been heads of terms agreed they haven't started the due diligence so like i say they've got to get in touch with companies and um, some of the equipment is expensive so it'll be on lease that's got to be paid off so having a well-prepared practice and having all your ducks in order is like what 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 adds to it selling quicker it's one of the factors isn't it kate that ensures a quick sale if it's if it's everything's in place you're going to sell it quicker than someone who's only just starting as soon as, as soon as we've instructed someone yeah.
1: It does as well, because we can look as well at, at things like the NHS contract. Well, you know, If you look at an NHS contract, where is it? Who's got hold of it? Whose name is it in? Whose CQC registration is mm-hmm. it in? Again, we can look at the property. Um, so it's worth just, you know, this solicitor doesn't have to do that much work before you, you, you have that side of things. But I think it is worth... Um, appointing somebody before you you, know, you don't have to wait until you've got an offer to do so um, and also we find that some sisters are fought over by buyers and sellers so if you want to get if there's somebody you want to pick and there's somebody you like you'd better off getting in there early than waiting until later on I've got a couple of the minute where I've got buyers and sellers both want to instruct and we can't <laughs> act for both and um, so yes it's getting getting again getting everything prepared and ready um appointing a solicitor is, is is key
0: that's actually quite a good point um i hadn't thought about that because that's the most difficult process as a seller i guess getting everything in order making sure everything is organized and if you put your practice out um for sale i guess that offer will come eventually so it's just a case of you being prepared from your side getting everything done and then you don't have that pressure as well from you know the the buyer the incoming buyer saying we want to complete in this amount of time and you don't have your things ready so if you are serious about selling then you really ought to get everything in order and organized before that offer comes in so that that process can be quite smooth and efficient
1: yeah I would absolutely agree Um, absolutely Um, getting that practice in order in the right place um helps and also we can probably give you a bit of a feel as well as to what the market is like not necessarily what the agent's view of a market is like. We can give mm. you our view as to what we're seeing happening. Um, and we can also put you in contact um, with other professionals. It might, you know, your accountant, for example, might not be comfortable with the sale process. They might be very good at doing your books. Mm. You might need sort of a specialist accountant just for this one-off process of selling. Mm. So it, it, it's it's just looking at other options, really.
0: So I think the moral of the story from everything we have spoken about is just be organized and have a clear idea of who you want to sell to when you want to sell and have everything ready when that transaction is going to go through like your due due diligence that that word never gets easier to say does it (laughs) (laughs) we call it
1: dd dd
2: (laughs) use abbreviations for everything
0: (laughs) perfect well thank you both so much i know this is such a complex topic like everything we've spoken about but i think that i mean i've learned a lot a lot of things that seem really simple but actually are quite important so thank you both so much for sharing your knowledge Thank you again. And thanks for the promotion. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode and hopefully learned a few things. I know I certainly did. And as always, don't forget to let me know what you thought of this episode. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Dr. Shadi I always love hearing your responses. And if you have any requests for future podcast episodes, please let me know there. I do usually listen if there are specific requests that are quite popular. As always, there will be a new episode every week. So please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. And I can't wait to speak to you soon.